Well, if you will, please turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. And as you're doing so, allow me to, to lead us in prayer. Lord, we come here to feast upon your word, your word that grants us life, your word that reveals to us your magnificent, salvific plan through Jesus Christ, your son, your word who does reveal the Lord Jesus to us. Lord, I pray you would give us humble hearts, that you would allow us, Lord, to remove any impediments of sin, Lord, that would try to justify ourselves before you, but that, Lord, we would just sit and receive the, the beautiful grace that comes from Jesus and his person, and allow us, Lord, to make much of him. Truly feed us, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, work in us through your word. We pray this in Christ alone. Amen. Well, last week, we got a little out of order in our text as we looked at both the last few verses of Matthew chapter 14, and then also the story of the Canaanite woman found in Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. Both accounts were instances of Jesus conducting himself in a way that was highly unusual for a pious male Jew of his time. He was allowing the general population to have free access to his person. People were bringing their sick friends and relatives to him, and he was healing them. And it's implied in verse 34 and also verse 36 of chapter 14 that he was touching them as well as they were touching him, which would have put the Lord in a position to come in contact with someone who was unclean. Jesus was not setting himself apart from others like other pious Jews would do. He was not carefully observing the traditions to ensure that one remained ceremonially, ceremonially pure. Then to make matters worse for the religiously sensitive, in verses 21 through 28 of chapter 15, Jesus deliberately enters into the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Notice notorious places filled with Gentile people, and there he comes into contact with the Syrophoenician woman, a descendant of Israel's ancient enemies, the Canaanites, a Gentile. And there he rewards her faith by freeing her daughter from demon repression. She had no right to a blessing from a Jewish man, yet our Lord graciously grants her request. And in the minds of strict Jews, Jesus is not adhering to the required social mores. Both events, the public healings and the contact with the Canaanite woman, made that painfully obvious. So this morning, I want to return us back to the beginning of chapter 15 and see Jesus' engagement with Pharisees who were questioning this behavior. The conversation with them is uncomfortable. Unlike the gentle and lowly Jesus of what we've been witnessing within these other scenes, Jesus comes across as abrasive to these pious men. And because he does so, we who value religion, we should take notice of this. Therefore, allow me to proceed this sermon by asking you two questions. Two questions. You might want to write these down. Number one, do we love religion and ritual more than we love God? Do we love religion and ritual more than we love God? That's the first question. Second question, could we be possibly portraying a false gospel as we strive for holiness? Could we possibly be portraying a false gospel as we strive for holiness? 
Now, I'd like you to think on both of those as we work our way through our text this morning. And these first 20 verses, they're divided here in three parts. We'll begin with the challenge of the Pharisees. Then we'll see Jesus' address um, to the duplicity of their behavior here. And then finally, we'll see Jesus diagnose their problem, that it is the state of their heart that is at issue. We might ask, well, what's the matter with these pious men? Well, the heart is the matter concerning them. So let's begin with the first two verses where they challenge our Lord. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now allow me to introduce who this is confronting Jesus. Now similar to our own Christian denominations, the Jews were divided into various parties that believed that their specific way was the best and sometimes the only way to follow Yahweh. The Pharisees were one of the stricter sects of Judaism. And yet in many doctrines, Jesus would have agreed with their teachings. Unlike their rival party, the Sadducees, they believed that all of the Old Testament books were scripture inspired by God. Not just the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They believed in angels and in demons because the Bible told them that they existed. They believed in an afterlife as well as a resurrection from the dead. And they made it their mission to open local synagogues to teach people the word of God. All of these were commendable traits. However, they were also noted for their strict interpretation of the law. And that strict adherence became a means of demonstrating how much more righteous they were instead of their peers. They discovered that they could wield power over others through their obedience. So over time, they put in place long-standing traditions adding to the law that allowed them to appear more pious than others. Now we're about to encounter one of those traditions. But I should also add, when you make personal obedience your primary religion, then you will easily get entangled within your own rules. Therefore, you're going to need a fresh interpretation in order to get what you want in life, in order to justify yourself, to have loopholes, if you will, so that you still give the appearance of being righteous when really you just want to cater to your own selfish desires. And that is precisely what the Pharisees were notorious for doing. Here, a deputation arrives from Jerusalem made up of Pharisees along with scribes who were legal experts on the commandments of God and the traditions. And Jesus had attracted not only the leadership here of the local synagogues in Galilee, but words of his deeds. This this rabbi who was not acting very Jewish got back to the capital city of Jerusalem. So a delegation comes to observe his behavior. And they asked Jesus a question about washing hands. And and it's clear from this question that they are criticizing his leadership. Just so we're clear, washing your hands before you eat is a wonderful, healthy practice. I encourage you to do it. And kids, if your parents tell you you need to wash up before dinner, then obey your parents. You don't want to get sick because you ate uh, food with dirty hands. But personal hygiene was not what they were criticizing. It was a tradition, not a law among the Pharisees, that you washed your hands before you ate. One wanted to do this publicly to show other people, hey, just in case you thought that I touched something that was unclean, like maybe I had a casual brush with a Gentile, 
or with a woman who was menstruating, or, or I removed a dead squirrel from my driveway, all things that would have been considered unclean, I want you to see that I am washing my hands before I touch my food. Whereas if, if I didn't wash up, I could contaminate my food, and therefore I put it in my body. And if I did eat this impure food, this dirty food, that would make me, my whole person, ceremonially unclean. Because if I eat something unclean, then I become unclean. And then I could touch you or someone else and make them unclean. It was all for show to make sure that everyone knew you were going over and beyond to keep yourself and everyone else from impurity. And apparently the disciples were not observing that tradition. And the Pharisees want to know, Jesus, why aren't you teaching them properly? So they were actually criticizing Jesus. I, I frequently get this as a pastor. It's this idea that all of you sitting here are a reflection of my ministry. Therefore, I, I get questions on occasions like, why do your ladies wear slacks to church and not dresses? Why do you allow them to, to wear makeup? Why do some of your members read Harry Potter books? And so on. As though whatever they find to be offensive or whatever behaviors that you guys are not exhibiting, somehow I failed to teach you what is correct. Make no mistake, this was, in truth, a criticism toward Jesus. It'll become the first step in accusing Jesus of leading others astray. But we can see just how nitpicking this accusation was in the first place, can't we? Here you have Jesus doing these remarkable, amazing things. People are being healed from disease and freed from demonic oppression. Lives are being transformed. And their question to him, the first question to him was about washing hands. I mean, I can almost see them investigating our Lord, you know, finding out the facts about him. They hear, Jesus touched and healed a blind man, but did he wash his hands first? Jesus fed 5,000 people, over 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, but did he get his hand sanitizer out first? Did y'all watch that first to see it happen beforehand? Jesus just strolled across the Sea of Galilee, but did he wash his hands before he got into the boat? Yes, I know there was water there, but did he wash his hands before he got into the boat? It's petty. And it reveals the state of their hearts that their status is based upon their obedience to the traditions. And Jesus calls them out for it. His point's going to be in verse 6, that they've made their man-made traditions more important than the words of God. But, but read this in verse 3. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now, honoring your father and your mother is a big commandment. In fact, it's in the top 10. And the idea of respecting your parents is found all over the Old Testament. Proverbs 1.8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Exodus 21, 17. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. 
Deuteronomy 27, 16, Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Proverbs 20, 20, If anyone curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. In an age before retirement funds and 401ks, children were financially obligated to care for their aged parents. This obligation was not only that you would take care of their subsistence, but you would also try to make them as comfortable as you were yourself. But the Pharisees argued that they could get out of this obligation if they declared the money for their parents as Corbin, which meant it was set apart for God to be donated to the temple treasurer. It's quite devious, really, because it relieved the financial pressure for at least one obligation. Sorry, Mom and Dad, um, I can't give you as much money here in your monthly allowance to to make you feel comfortable because I need to put it in the offering plate at church. Uh, Otherwise, I won't be able to tithe this week. Got to love God with my money first. Isn't that what you taught me? (laughs) It's like that old adage of robbing Peter in order to pay Paul. It, It was a loophole that still made one appear righteous. Money goes to God first, and oh yeah, I found a way to get out of giving the full amount of money to my aged parents. But how does one love God? Jesus would say in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Notice Jesus doesn't say, whoever obeys my commands is more righteous, but that he loves me. There's a difference in the two types of obedience. One type is concerned with keeping one's status before God. The other is motivated by pure love. I'm sure you all have friends that that when people are watching, they're the ones that are always obeying the rules, right? They never get out of line. They're kind of like that Eddie Haskell character in Leave it to Beaver, some of us are aged enough to know what that means. But talk to them privately, and they tear down the authority, and they bemoan having to follow those rules. They only obey for appearance sake. And then there are others who honor and obey just out of sincere love. What they do privately actually matches what they proclaim publicly. But the former had been a consistent problem for all of Israel's history, not just these Pharisees. It was obedience for obedience's sake, as though somehow God is obligated to bless you because you kept the commandment. That's the way I used to live my life before I came to saving faith in Christ. I thought if I just rigidly stick to those rules, then God is obligated to serve me, to do my bidding. But the commandments were put into place so that we might demonstrate our faith in and our love towards God. And Jesus makes this point in the following verses as he points out their duplicity. Verse 7, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is the first time that the Pharisees are called hypocrites by Jesus in Matthew's gospel, which in Greek is actors pretending with masks on. He uses the words of Isaiah 29, 13 from a time in Israel's past, just before the Babylonian captivity, when they went through the motions of their temple worship and obedience of God's commands. But their hearts were just not into it, like we talked about earlier. And by quoting scripture, 
He uses the very words of God to correct their false traditions. They were not being truthful or honest with God. They said one thing, but their hearts revealed that they were far from God. And because of this, they corrupted the truth of God's worth with their traditions. And it called into question all of their worship and all of their teaching. What motivates you to worship and obey God? Is it love or to protect self-righteousness? Because that will affect your understanding of the gospel, of how one is made right before God. And Jesus is officially going to call them out on it. Notice here in verse 10, at this point, he calls the crowds to himself. And this is the answer to the Pharisees' question of verse 2. But Jesus is going to answer it publicly in front of everyone here. Verse 10, hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And, and I'll have you notice here that Jesus draws attention to what is coming out of their mouths. It is the words of the Pharisees that they have taught that is defiling or corrupting both themselves and those around them. What were they teaching? Well, despite how pious they appeared, it was what they were teaching that made one unclean before God. It did not preserve righteous standing before God. Rather, it defiled it. And it would appear, starting from verse 12, the disciples have a moment alone with Jesus, and it's obvious from the disciples' question that the Pharisees got the message loud and clear from Jesus as they ask him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Which is referring to verse 11. Their question is revealing here for two reasons. One, Jesus was not in the habit of publicly calling out others. That was somewhat unusual. And two, they were concerned about offending the powerful Pharisees. Perhaps their question reveals a fear of men within the disciples. But Jesus doesn't downplay the gravity of the situation. He doesn't say to them, oh, well, the Pharisees, they'll get over it. Or I better go over there and I better apologize. I better make things right. No, he deepens the seriousness here of their actions. Verse 13, he answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Now, I have no doubt that the disciples' mind would have been drawn back to the parable of the weeds back in chapter 13 as Jesus spoke of being uprooted. That's what you do with undesirable plants in your garden. You pull them up and you burn them. And that is the judgment that Jesus is making on the Pharisees. He also tells the disciples not to be concerned with the Pharisees. They are blind guides leading the blind. And again, this builds upon Jesus' words of Matthew 13, verses 13 through 17, where he explained that some cannot understand the parables because they're unable to see. They are blind to the truth of God. And not only that, these blind guides are leading other blind people to their destruction. They are presenting a way of life that cannot save from the wrath that is to come. Unlike Jesus, the Pharisees are leading their disciples to death. So at this point, again, going back to Matthew chapter 13, knowing from verse 34 of that chapter that Jesus never spoke to crowds without a parable, Remember, verse 10 says he's speaking to the general population here. Peter interjects that he perceives there is a deeper meaning to these words that Jesus gave in his statement in verse 11. One greater than just eating unclean food. 
And Jesus reveals that when it comes to sin and righteousness, the problem is never about what is outside of men and women, but what is going on inside. The heart is always the problem. Verse 16, and he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into your mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Food is just that, food. But real uncleanliness emerges from inside of us, not outside of us. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Those are more than just the words. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands, that does not defile anyone. The issue the Pharisees had where they were trying to cure their sinfulness by a controlled environment, overkill on protections to protect their personal righteousness. But what they really needed was a radical heart transformation. The issue at hand that they failed to see was men and women are never pure to start off with. Never. Therefore, they need brand new hearts. The Pharisees were acting from that same issue that plagues every human being with the exception of the Lord Jesus. We are all rebels against God. We are born into sin. I have to correct people from the Bible all the time when they try to tell me we are naturally good. No. Adam and Eve were created naturally good, but they're the ones to introduce sin into humanity by their own initiative. And ever since then, Psalm 51.5 states, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is what theologians refer to as the doctrine of total depravity. All of our actions and all of our thought processes have been tainted by this rebellion against God. Now, this doctrine doesn't mean that we're all little Adolf Hitlers, that we're absolute in our actions, that every action is intended for evil, nor does it mean that you're incapable of doing a good deed from time to time or perform a noble act such as saving somebody's life or, or provide encouraging words to someone. But the source of where those things are determined is contaminated, and it has contaminated all those processes. No one had to teach you how to sin, did they? Despite your parents always serving you as a baby, no one had to teach you to be selfish, did they? It just comes out of you naturally, at its source, which is our sinful hearts. Jeremiah 17, 19, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We need our hearts cured from the sickness of sin. Now, I said this a couple of weeks ago. No one forces you to sin. Someone may provoke you, but your reaction is your own choice. James makes this abundantly clear, it, that it proceeds from our heart. Please turn, if you will, to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. This is found on page 1011 of your pew Bible. I was just sharing this with a dear friend this past week, and it's perfect for this discussion, too. James chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Our lives are made up of these little tests of our faith. What will we do when we face choices, both in good situations or in bad situations? When good things happen to us, will I glorify God or will I be self-indulgent? When temptations come, will I give in to sin or trust in the promises of God? Pass or fail, these tests are designed to teach us to persevere, to grow in our faith, to remain steadfast to God. But since these tests come from a sovereign God, perhaps one might think, well, the tests come from God, therefore God is the one that's tempting me. He's the one that's causing all this. He's the one that's provoking me to sin. Therefore, the consequences are his fault. But James corrects that thinking in verse 13. Look at that. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Where does temptation come from? Where does the desire to sin originate from? From inside of us. It's our own. And then he says, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. The only way to correct this problem is to have a renewed heart. It cannot be fixed from the outside. It must be renewed on the inside. The Apostle Paul, who used to be the Pharisee of Pharisees, but he came to this conclusion, he states in Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We need new hearts regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to free us from the captivity of our sin. He freed us from our own sinful choices. It's not just that Jesus saves you from the wrath of God and judgment. Jesus saves us from ourselves so that we might live unto God in the design that we were created. And in Matthew 15, going back to that, actually, I'm going to get you to turn, if you will, turn to Ephesians 2. Jesus reveals the problem there in Matthew 15, but the specific passage there doesn't provide us with the quick solution. So I'd be remiss if I didn't address that. Allow me, if you will, turn to the words of Paul, this former Pharisee's teaching on this. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. This is on page 976 of your pew Bible. Now, we can look at several places where it talks about this, but this passage provides a nice synopsis of our situation. Verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses of your sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and whereby nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Before Jesus came, we were dead in our sins. We were trapped by our sins. We were held captive by it, unable to do anything about it. We just lived to indulge the flesh where we were headed towards destruction. It's kind of like a dead fish floating on the current, watching it flow down the river. And that's what was happening to us. We're dead in sin. We're just following the world, following the passions of our flesh, unable to do anything about it until we see verse 4. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now get this, as opposed to the Pharisees of Matthew 15, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. It's not what we've done to ourselves. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We weren't just saved from our sins. We are saved for God to live in harmony of how he created us. So let's stop here. Let's, let's seek some application. I want to answer our questions from the beginning of the sermon. But before I do, there's just one minor issue that I don't want to overlook here in Matthew chapter 15. It's implied in the text here. Now, we're fond of saying and singing, Jesus loves the little children. And that is absolutely true. He does. But it's equally true that Jesus also loves the old fogies. He does. Yes, we care for the children. We care for the unborn. But we are also to care for all of life, including the aged. And our Lord's teaching to the Pharisees was that adult children should do their best to take care of their aged parents. And by best, I mean to the best of their abilities. And sometimes best care isn't always that parents move into your home when they can't take care of themselves. So I don't want to make anyone feel any unnecessary guilt because an aged parent might receive better care at a facility. But God's word is abundantly clear that he cares about all of life including our senior citizens. So seniors, I want you to know, I love you. I do. And we should do everything we can to serve those, particularly who have blessed us with such a rich heritage and foundation of faith that provided that to us. But back to our earlier questions. Remember, I asked you, do you love religion and ritual more than you love God? And could you possibly be portraying a false gospel as you strive for holiness? These are dangerous questions. In quoting Isaiah 29, 13, Jesus draws attention to worship and doctrine. It's possible that you love following the rules because they provide a nice, straight boundary for you. And you love that more than you love the giver of the rules who designed you. Or you like following the commands of God because you think somehow that's what makes you righteous or makes you feel that you're contributing to your own justification. They provide ways for you to control your behavior and justify yourself. But correct doctrine teaches we are not justified by works, but by faith in the righteousness of Christ. If you're being obedient to the law for any other reason than love for your God who saved you through the Son, stop. Stop and repent. You may even on this day, you may be singing, you, you may be praying, you may be attending here at church and be included in this statement of these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And if you're living as though your trust is in your personal obedience, then you are in danger of portraying a false gospel for sure. As though it's your behavior that saves you, not faith in the work of Christ. 
you can become like one of these Pharisees, the blind guides leading the blind over a cliff. But if you live by the gospel and you proclaim the gospel, then you become a light in the darkness, a good seeing guide to the blind, not just leading them away from danger, but healing and restoring their sight. Several years ago, I conducted the funeral of a member of another church that I was serving. And I'm going to call this man that, that I did the funeral service for. His name is Jim, though that wasn't his name. But one of his coworkers came up to me after the service, and he said, man, I knew Jim was a good guy. Jim never told dirty jokes in the office. He never gossiped among his coworkers. He was always honest in his dealings. But until today, I never knew why. In fact, until I came to his funeral, I thought Jim was a Mormon. That struck me. My dear departed friend, not, you know, he might not have ever had the opportunity to explain his hope in the gospel to this coworker. So it might not be that Jim failed to tell him, after all, in God's sovereignty, the man did come to his funeral and he heard the gospel. But this co-worker's words made me pause in the moment. Do people think that my behavior is based upon anything other than saving faith in Jesus Christ alone? I would hate for them to think that I behave the way that I do because it appears that I'm trying to earn my way into heaven. Or even worse, it's because it's what's expected in my profession as a pastor. I want to be bold in the gospel. I want people to know that my life has been transformed by Christ. And the only way that that can happen is if I'm continually confessing my sin before others and telling them I'm still relying upon the gospel each and every day. I want them to know I am a miserable sinner that is just floating in the sea of God's grace. So the questions are still relevant. What is it that's going to provide my right standing before God? Is it because before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love? Or do I think I am the golden child because I keep all of the rules? What is it that I'm portraying to others? Good behavior to show how different I am compared to them? Or a manner of living to show I love my God, I take pleasure in Him and desire to glorify Him forever? And if you find yourself still trying to make up for your own sin, then let me just say, you're no different than any one of us. If you wonder, why do I keep giving myself over into this particular bad behavior over and over again? Why do I feel trapped in my sinfulness? Well, it's due to that sin-sick heart that I spoke of before. It's the same type of heart that will tell you, well, if I just act better, then God will love me, and then, then he will fix my problems. Your obedience will never merit God's love. He loves you already. He loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son to take the wrath that you deserve. That while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. It is only Jesus and love for him that will satisfy your debt before a holy and just God. 
Only Jesus. And if you would be freed from your enslaved sinful hearts, quit trying to free yourself because you need help from outside of yourself. You need Jesus. Confess your great need to say, Lord, I am helpless to do anything about this. I can't make up for my sins. Only Jesus can atone for my sins. Only he can free me from this captivity. Put your faith in him. Rest in the Lord Jesus because that is where your hope is. Let's pray. Lord, I certainly hope that I've been able to step out of the way of myself, Lord, and to, to know that the Holy Spirit has used your words to convey in us, Lord, that there is still inside of us sometimes this desire to be self-righteous, to somehow think that you would love us more if we partake of particular works. But Lord, we know that there is no greater love that you could give us than the beautiful sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. To know that it is faith in him and his works, that it was sufficient, that it was enough, that it frees us from sin and allows us to stand before you, not in fear, but to stand before you as children who love you and to know that you love us in return. And so, Lord, we pray that you would magnify the gospel in us once again. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray, Lord, that we would live our lives in such a way that those who look at us, that those who observe us, that they wouldn't get the wrong impression that we are somehow trying to justify ourselves by our works, but they would see that we are still sinners always in need of your grace, that we're always resting in your gospel. And then, Lord, I pray for that person here this morning, that friend, Lord, who is trying to fix themselves, who keeps finding themselves over and over again just trapped, captive. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them, that they'd quit trying to do it on their own and, and turn to you and allow Jesus to free them as only he can do in the finished work of the cross. That is our salvation. That is our hope. Jesus, 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 and him alone. We pray this in his finished work. Amen.